All right, well, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at Christ's letter to the church in Laodicea in verses 14 through 22. And Jesus left his most hard-hitting letter for last. And I told you on Sunday we were going to learn about what makes Jesus want to puke. And that's what this letter is about. So let's read it as we begin. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may not so that you may see verse 19 those whom i love i reprove and discipline therefore be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, you have given us, all of us, two ears. And you want us to use them tonight to hear these words from your son Jesus to us, his beloved bride. And while these words may be hard to hear, may we remember that they are spoken in love. Thank you for the mercy and the grace that you extend to us over and over and over again, even when we fail miserably and live in self-reliance and independence of you, you always woo us back and call us home and invite us back to intimacy with you. And so I pray tonight that you would accomplish your work in all of our hearts and in the heart of this church, Father, as we study this together, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I assume most of you are familiar with that classic folk tale by Hans Christian Andersen, The Emperor's New Clothes. For those of you that have not heard it or haven't heard it for a while, let me retell it this evening. It goes like this. Once upon a time, there lived a vain emperor whose only desire in life was to dress in eloquent, elegant clothes. He changed clothes almost every hour and loved to show them off to his people. Word of the emperor's habits spread throughout the kingdom, and two scoundrels decided to take advantage of the emperor's vanity. They went to the emperor and said, we are two very good tailors, and after many years of research, we've invented an extraordinary method to weave cloth so light and fine that it looks invisible. As a matter of fact, it is invisible to anyone who's too stupid and incompetent to appreciate its fine quality. And besides being invisible, your Highness, this cloth will be woven in colors and patterns created especially for you. Well, the emperor was very intrigued by their proposal, and so he gave them a bag of gold and told them to begin working on his new outfit immediately. And so they asked for a loom and some silk and some gold thread, and then they began to pretend to work. One day, the emperor received the announcement that the two tailors had come to take his measurements for his new suit. So he ordered the tailors to enter, and they entered pretending to hold this large roll of fabric. 
And bowing, they said, here it is, your highness, the result of our labor. We have worked night and day, but at last, the most beautiful fabric in the world is ready for you. Look at the colors and feel how fine it is. And of course, the emperor didn't see any colors, and he couldn't feel any cloth between his fingers, and he began to panic and said to himself, if I can't see anything, that means I'm stupid and incompetent. But then he realized that no one could know that he couldn't see the fabric, and so they wouldn't find out that he was stupid and incompetent. And so he went along with these two tailors. And after taking his measurements, the two tailors continued their farce as they began cutting the air with their scissors and sewing with their needles with invisible thread. Then they asked the emperor to take off his clothes to try on his new outfit. And the two rascals draped the new clothes on him and held up a mirror. And the emperor was embarrassed, but said, wow, this is a splendid suit. It looks very good on me. You've done a great job. Well, at that time, the prime minister entered and said, your majesty, we have a request of you. The people have found out about this extraordinary fabric, and they want to see your new suit. He said, all right, I'll grant the people this privilege. And so he summoned his carriage and the ceremonial parade was formed and all the people gathered in the main square pressing against one another to get a good view of their king. And applause welcomed the regal procession as it approached. But as the emperor passed, a strange murmur rose from the crowd. But since no one was willing to admit their stupidity and their incompetence, at not being able to see the clothes, they all cried out, look at the emperor's new clothes. They're beautiful. What a marvelous train. What brilliant colors. We've never seen anything like this in our lives. And in the midst of the crowd's commotion, a, a little boy ran up to the emperor's carriage and pointed at the king and said, the emperor is naked. And the child's words were repeated over and over throughout the crowd until everyone was yelling, yelling, the boy is right, the emperor's naked. And the emperor realized what the people were saying was true, but he couldn't admit to that. And so he thought it better to continue the procession under the delusion that anyone who couldn't see his clothes was either stupid or incompetent. And so he stood there proudly on his carriage while behind him, a page held his imaginary mantle. Well, this story, I think, is a fitting analogy of the church in Laodicea. The last and worst church addressed by the Lord in Revelations 2, 2 and 3, they were a group of self-sufficient, self-absorbed, and self-deceived individuals. And because of their arrogance and their prideful independence, they were blind to their true spiritual condition, that they couldn't see themselves for what they actually were. They lived under the delusion that they were clothed in elegant beauty and splendor, when in reality, they were walking around buck naked. But Christ loved them enough to call out their nakedness. And like that brutally honest little boy who boldly blurted out the truth to that vain emperor, Jesus confronted this vain church about the harsh reality of their spiritual state. And what we've already read and what we're going to look at in more depth are some of the harshest words that Christ ever spoke in Scripture. And so let's consider what Christ said to this church and, and how it applies to us individually and also as a church. And so, again, we're just going to follow that outline, uh, that same literary pattern that Christ used in all seven of his letters here. We're going to see the correspondent. We're going to see the city. We're going to see the church, the commendation, which there is none, by the way, uh, the condemnation, the correction or command, and then the consolation. So let's look, first of all, at the correspondent, which, of course, is Jesus himself. Verse 14 we read this, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. Now, notice, first of all, that 
Jesus didn't identify himself using any of the phrases from the vision that John had of him recorded uh, in uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. That was kind of what he's been doing through most of these letters, but he didn't do that here. He chose instead to focus on three divine characteristics that emphasize the veracity of his words and the authority he had to say what he was about to say to this church. And so he calls himself the amen, which is, by the way, the word amen is a transliteration of the Hebrew word meaning truth or, or certainty. And, and we use that word to affirm or agree with the truth or certainty of a prayer or some kind of statement. And so when someone prays a prayer, we all say at the end, what? Amen. Or even if somebody makes some comment and you're like, amen, sister, amen, brother, right? It's, you're just affirming the truth that I agree with that, I believe that. In the Old Testament, God is called the God of truth, Isaiah 65, 16. God only and always tells, tells the truth. God cannot lie. What he has promised will come true. And in the New Testament, Jesus is called the Amen of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul said, For as many as may be the promises of God, in him they are yes. In Christ they are yes. Wherefore also by him, by Christ, is our amen to the glory of God through us. In other words, all of God's promises of peace and joy and, and, and hope and love and goodness and forgiveness and salvation and sanctification and fellowship and glorification and heaven are all made possible and are fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Through his death and his burial, his resurrection, Jesus Christ affirmed every, and, and, and I would maybe say this way, not only affirmed, but accomplished every promise that God ever made. He is the last and final word that guarantees everything that God has said is true. So he's the amen. He's also the faithful and true witness. This phrase is used elsewhere in Revelation to describe Christ. Uh, chapter 1, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Uh, chapter 3, verse 7, he who is holy, who is true, and who has the key of David. Um, that, that's not the verse I was looking at. How about 1911 is what I was looking at. Uh, 1911, uh, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. So you have this idea of being a faithful and true witness. And again, it just emphasizes the reliability of Christ's words. Christ's words are infallible. They are inerrant. Everything he says is true. They're, they're trustworthy. He, he's the perfect witness. And, and, and again, a, a witness. Some of you may have served as a witness, um, maybe in, in some court case or or in some other context, but a witness is someone who accurately testifies to what they've seen and heard. And a faithful witness tells everything he knows, and he holds nothing back, and they are committed. A faithful witness is committed to speak the truth, the whole truth, and what? Nothing but the truth. And that's exactly what Jesus did in this letter. He spoke the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So he's the amen, the faithful and true witness, and then lastly, the beginning of the creation of God. That word beginning is the Greek word for uh, arche, which is better translated origin or source. And I point that out because Jesus was not saying here that he was the first thing God created, that he was the beginning of the creation of God. No, he was the origin or the source of the creation of God. God, uh, Jesus, excuse me, Jesus was never created. He never had a beginning. He has always existed with the Father in eternity past. We know that from Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, when he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, right, beginning and the end, uh, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. We see that again in Revelation twenty-two thirteen. 13. So, Again, what Jesus was saying here is that he was the one who created everything. In other words, it all began with him. 
He is the source or the origin of creation. All things came into being through Christ. And then again, this is maybe where we're dividing up some of the roles of the three members of the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And this is a truth, by the way, that's affirmed throughout Scripture. John 1, this is how Christ is introduced in the Gospel of John. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Hebrews 1, 2, God has spoken to us in his Son through whom he made the world. So God the Father made the world through his Son. And of course, we know the Spirit of God had a role in there. He's given some credit throughout the scriptures as well. But we're focusing on Christ's role here. Colossians 1 probably says it the clearest. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, talking about Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. Talking about Christ. And by the way, Colossae, we're going to see just in a moment, was not far from Laodicea. And so it may have been that the same Gnostic heresy that plagued the church in Colossae um, had also infiltrated the Laodicean church. And, And that heresy was essentially that Christ was a created being. That he was one of a series of emanations from God. And so Jesus corrected that heresy by saying, no, I'm the beginning of the creation of God. So, all that to say, Jesus introduced himself as the one most qualified to accurately assess the spiritual situation in the Laodicean church. He is the truth and the source of all truth, and the truth he was about to share with them was so shocking that he knew that they would have a hard time believing his words because it was the exact opposite of how they viewed themselves. They saw themselves as wealthy and having need of nothing. And Jesus was about to say to them, about to tell them the truth, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so again, he had to verify to them, hey, you can trust what I'm about to tell you. Because I am the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So that's the correspondent. Now let's learn a little bit about the city here to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Laodicea was the last stop on the postal route there that we've been following in these seven letters to the seven churches. It was about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia. It was located in in close proximity to two other cities that are mentioned in Scripture. We've already talked about Colossae. was 10 miles to the southeast of uh, Laodicea, and Heropolis was six miles to the north. And the Laodiceans prided themselves um, in, in, uh, in that, and that they were, and then what they were most well known for were several things banking, textiles, and medicine. And so it was a very uh, interesting city. And, and, and I think this is what makes this letter so interesting is that Jesus made reference to all three of these industries in this letter uh, to the church in Laodicea. So it's helpful for us to know the historical and geographical background of this city because it helps us accurately interpret what Jesus was saying to them. Um, Just to give you an idea of how affluent this city was, in AD 60, which was about 35 years before this letter was written, Laodicea was decimated by a severe earthquake along with all the other cities in the region. And so Rome, as they would do, Um, when a city was destroyed for some reason, they would offer financial aid to help these cities in their empire recover. But the Laodiceans uh, were so wealthy, they refused the the free money from the government, right? Uh, The government handout, and they were able to rebuild their city without any help from Rome. In fact, I found this interesting. The archaeologists have found the inscription engraved on several of the buildings reconstructed after the earthquake in Greek that simply says, by our own might. And so the city was very proud. 
uh, very self-reliant. And yet, despite the, the great affluence of this city, it had one drawback. It lacked a natural water supply. And so drinking water had to be brought in from a neighboring town called Denizli, which was located about six miles to the south, west, I believe. It's over, over to the west of the city. Um, and, and archaeologists have, that, that have excavated the region have unearthed an elaborate underground aqueduct system designed to pump water through pipes into Laodicea. The only problem with that is that by the time the water got there, it was what? Lukewarm. And had, I found this also interesting, had a high calcium carbonate content that would often cause vomiting. That would make people puke um, because of all the minerals and, and, and even the, the, the uh, parasites and things that would grow, the bacteria that would grow in that, luke, in that lukewarm water. We get lukewarm water, right? Because when we turn our, on our faucets nowadays in the middle of the summer here in Texas, you typically, that's all you get, right? There's no cold water coming out of your hose or your pipes. I mean, that's what's just coming. So that was the city. Now let's talk about the church here quickly. Um, verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Now we don't know... Uh, exactly how or when this church was planted, but I think, again, it's safe to assume that, that this church was likely established during Paul's two-and-a-half to three-year stay in Ephesus. Acts 19.10 talks about that was kind of a, a home base for a while, and he would branch out and uh, reach other areas, or other people would come from other cities and meet Paul, and he'd share, share the gospel with them. They'd get saved. They'd go back to their city, and they would plant a church. Um, we know that Paul never visited this church, but by his mention of it in his letter to the church in Colossae, he was obviously concerned about it. Interesting uh, that this church is mentioned in the letter uh, to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. Uh, chapter 4, verse 13, for I testify for him, uh, talking about Epaphras, one of his fellow workers, that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So both of these neighboring cities are mentioned here and then again in chapter or verse 15 greet the brethren who are in Laodicea verse 16 when this letter is read among you have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and you for your part read my letter that is coming from Laodicea so here's a, a church that was part of the ministry of the apostle Paul but sadly this church in just a few short years uh, after uh, the death of the Apostle Paul, uh, the church had become a reflection of the proud city in which they lived and had adopted a similar spirit of self-reliance. They thought they were able to exist without God's help. A couple of verses came to my mind as I was thinking about prideful self-reliance. Not anything I ever struggle with, um, so, but just for those of you that might struggle with that. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him, boast, let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And then another verse that I thought of was Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. And this was um, God speaking to Zechariah. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. 
And then, of course, John 15, 5, probably the most familiar uh, verse, John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So, we see a church in a city that was very self-reliant and the church had become just like the world around it. So, that brings us to the commendation, which I already mentioned. This is the only church to which Christ didn't speak a single word of commendation. Even Sardis, the dead church that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, had at least a small remnant that hadn't fallen asleep. But Christ had nothing good to say to this sorry excuse for a church that had become completely revulsive or repulsive uh, to Christ. In fact, things had gotten so bad here in Laodicea that some Bible teachers and commentators have actually questioned if these people were even saved. Some characterize this as an apostate church filled with unbelievers. I don't agree with that. Um, but just to know how severe uh, the situation was. Well, let's look at what was, what was up here with the church in Laodicea. And let's look at the condemnation. And this is the, really the heart of the, the, the letter, uh, verses 15 to 17. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So in essence, what Jesus said here was, you make me sick to my stomach. You make me want to throw up. Every time I look at you, I want to puke. Okay? I know these are kind of severe statements, but that's the idea of spewing you out. Right? You put some in your mouth that you ever, you ever you know, got the milk out and like put it in your cereal and, and you didn't notice the curds that were developing there and, and you, you, know, you took a big spoonful of whatever your Frosted Flakes or Apple Jacks and where did they all end up? <laughs> right? You're like, oh, that's disgusting. And they, they got spewed out of your mouth. The question is, what was Jesus so disgusted by? Well, he mentioned four things that nauseated him about this church. Number one, they were spiritually bland. They were spiritually bland. He says that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, but you're not. You're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. So in, in, in the Greek here, it, it, it's interesting it, that it's really, he, he says, I wish you were icy cold or boiling hot. So, the, so it's the two opposite extremes here that he's emphasizing. And, and so this verse, I think, is, is typically spiritualized to describe the, the, the degree of a person's spiritual commitment. And some have likened the, the cold person to an unsaved person who has a stone-cold heart toward Christ. The, the hot person is the, the Christian whose heart is on fire for Christ. And in, in other words, some say that Jesus was saying that he'd rather have you be a total pagan than to be a lukewarm Christian. But I can't imagine Christ preferring that someone wasn't saved. I think a more accurate understanding of what Christ was saying here comes when, when, when we interpret his words literally in the historical context. And what Christ was saying to the Laodiceans, I think, was vividly clear to them because of where they lived. So again, a good way to remember when you're trying to understand a passage is, how would the original hearers have understood what was said? Don't just immediately, well, what do I think it means? Well, frankly, I could care less what you think it means. And you should care less what I think it means. What did they think it meant? What did they know it meant? What did Jesus mean when he said this again historical context a little geography here we already mentioned just south of them was Colossae which was known for its cold pure water that flowed from the snow-capped mountains Heropolis was just north of them was famous for its medicinal hot springs in fact there's actually to this day uh, cliffs that are just all white 
because of the, the hot springs and all the chemicals that come down, and it just looks like this white um, cliff uh, because of these hot springs. And so to the Laodiceans, cold water wasn't negative, and hot water wasn't positive. Like, well, it's not good to be cold. He really wants you hot. No, those are, they're, they're both good in those days. Um, the cold water in Colossae was refreshing and, and revitalizing, and the hot water in Heropolis was relaxing and restoring. But Laodicea's lukewarm water supply piped in from that neighboring town of Denizli was good for nothing. It was useless. It was, and, and unfortunately, it was just like the church in Laodicea. They weren't refreshing to the spiritual weary, nor were they restorative to the spiritually sick. They were just kind of spiritually blocked. One man said it this way, that they had mediocre, middle-of-the-road faith that affected or offended no one. They were comfortable. They were complacent. They had a half-hearted devotion to Christ. This was a, a church full of casual Christians who were straddling the fence, trying to play both ends in the middle. They were wishy-washy. And they had just enough spirituality to be at church on Sunday, but not enough to live the rest of their, the, the week in a way that caused anyone to come to Christ. Another example of this hot and cold thing would just be tea. We all drink, right? You sit down at a restaurant, they, hey, what, you want some, what do you want? Water, sweet tea, iced tea, whatever. Um, or you go to a Chinese restaurant or an Asian restaurant, you want hot tea, right? Well, you either want really cold tea or you, really want, you want really hot tea. You don't want something in between, right? And that's why the waitress or waiter or server comes, keeps coming and refreshing your glass, right, and putting some more ice in it or topping off your coffee, right? It's, give me a little warm-up, right? Uh, that's, that's the idea here. These are both positive things. It's the lukewarm thing that you don't want to be. So they were spiritually bland or blah, you could say. They were also spiritually bankrupt. Notice it says, verse 17, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. So again, the city was extremely wealthy. It was actually the banking center for that region. Great sums of gold and, and silver uh, and Roman currency were kept on deposit in Laodicea. And, and uh, again, this bred in the people a prideful independence, gave them a false sense of security and self-sufficiency, and yet they were completely unaware of their spiritual poverty. Verse 18 Notice he says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. Christ told them to, to come to him and, and purchase real spiritual gold. In other words, genuine faith that has been proven and refined through the fire of trials. 1 Peter 1.7 would be an example of that. And so they were spiritually, spiritually bland. They were spiritually bankrupt. They were also spiritually blind. Notice verse 17. He says, And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind. Which is so ironic because there was a famous school of ophthalmology there in Laodicea which had formulated a, a special salve called Phrygian powder that, that healed many of the common eye troubles of the Middle East. So people would come from all over the Middle East to, to Laodicea to get their eyes fixed to help their, them to see more clearly and so tragically in that city that had, had made a reputation for itself by helping others to see the church itself was unable to see how wretched they looked in the eyes of Christ and so that's why in verse 18 he says I advise you to buy from me not just gold but also eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So they were spiritually bland, they were spiritually bankrupt, they were spiritually blind, and lastly, they were spiritually bare. 
verse 17, again, I am rich because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and I need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, as we say it here in the South, right? Which again is ironic because Laodicea excelled in making clothes. I mean, they, were, they, they supplied the, the whole region with, with, with textiles and clothes, and they, they had perfected a, 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 a type of cloth. It was a soft, glossy black wool from the sheep that they grew uh, or raised in that area. And so while they're providing clothes for others, it didn't dawn on them that, spiritually speaking, they were running around naked themselves. And notice what he says in verse 18. Again, I advise you to buy from me not just gold, not just eye salve, but he says, I also uh, advise you to buy white garments as opposed to black garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. So Christ urged them to, to purchase from him pure white clothing, which I think is symbolic of the righteousness of Christ, right, that covers the nakedness of our sin. Christian talked about that, uh, realizing that we're all sinful, and uh, that, that sin needs to be covered by the righteousness of Christ. And so again, it's just ironic that Christ told them to get from him all the things that others came from all over the world to get from them. And what he was doing, I think, at the end of the day, was calling this church to rely on him and his resources rather than their own. I think there's some good application there for every one of us, right? How many of us are guilty of relying on our own resources rather than on Christ and his resources. Especially those of us that live here in the, the affluent West where we have so much, where we don't feel the need, right, to rely on the Lord, to depend on God for things because we, we have them. So what's the correction? Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. And if you're feeling beat down here tonight a little bit, like, whoa, this is kind of heavy, this is harsh, this is like in my kitchen here, here you should be encouraged, we should all be encouraged because even though Christ was disgusted, was nauseated by the spiritual blandness and bankruptcy and blindness and bareness of this church, he still loved them. And he longed to regain that intimate relationship that he once shared with them. He didn't, he didn't just kick them to the curb, like spit them out, like, see you later, man. I don't have anything to do with you guys. No, he, he, he was wooing them back to him. And the, the simple fact that he wrote them this letter and just didn't just cast them aside as evidence of his love for this church and his desire for them to repent of their backslidden state and be restored to fellowship with him. And so he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Christ was proving his love for this church by chastening them, by confronting them. Proverbs 3, verse 11, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. Proverbs 13, 24, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Have you ever heard a parent say, well, I just, I just can't bring myself to, 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 to spank little Johnny. I just love him too much. No, if you really love little Johnny, you would spank him. Hebrews chapter 12 is the classic text on the discipline of the Lord. This is uh, Hebrews 12, 5. He quotes, the writer of Hebrews quotes Proverbs three eleven. 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. And then he expands on that. He says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, it's, a good, it's, it's not a good thing when you're not getting spanked. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best of them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There's some good application here for us, not only with our children, disciplining our children, but even the whole discipline process of the church, we, we talked about this church discipline, right? Matthew 18 talks about if you see your brother, uh, you know, sinning, you're supposed to go privately and confront them and seek to win them back, restore them, right? If any of you, this is Ephesians, or Galatians 6, 1 says, if, if you see a brother overtaken in a fault, you are spiritual, go to him and restore him in the spirit of, of, of humility, gentleness, looking to yourself lest you too be tempted, this is the point. If, if, you, if we see someone sinning or falling away from the Lord, if we truly care about them, we're going to confront them about it. And no one likes to do that, by the way. I'm not, I'm not one that loves to confront people. Um, it, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's awkward. It's time-consuming. It's emotionally, physically draining. I mean, none of us like those awkward relational moments, right, in life. But if we don't, if we're not willing to have that awkward relational moment, then what we're saying is that we don't really love that person. In fact, what we're saying is we love ourselves. We love our own comfort. We love our own happiness, our own reputation. What are they going to think of me if I say this to them, right? They may not like me. They may never talk to me again. Um, what about we, we love our friendship, our, we love our time, Right? More than we love these people. So confronting someone shows how much you love them and how much you care about them. Listen, if you drove by my house one day and you saw my house was on fire, and you're like, well, I don't know how to tell them that. That's kind of be awkward to go and run up in there and knock on the door and say, hey, Ken, just so you know, your house is on fire. So yeah, I, I well, maybe somebody else will tell them. I'm just going to keep going. Well, if you truly love me, what are you going to do? You're going to run into my, you're going to bust through the front door of my house and say, Ken, Kelly, Ramey's that your house is on fire. Let me help you get out of this. Let me rescue you. But it's when we, we see, we, we see people's, you know, smoke coming from people's lives, right? And we're like, well, maybe somebody else will say, say something. Surely I'm not the only one who knows or sees that, but maybe somebody else will know. If you love that person, go and care for them. Again, if Christ hadn't cared so much for this church, if he didn't care so much for us, he, he wouldn't bother with us like he does, like he, he bothered with them, right? He cared. And he wasn't content to let them stay in their lukewarm state, and so he commanded them to do two things. The first one was to be zealous. You see that? Verse 19, therefore, be zealous. In other words, get excited about me. That's what he's saying there. Pursue me with great fervency. Be enthusiastic about the things of the Lord. Be totally devoted to the cause of Christ. Live with passion. Beg Christ to stir up your lukewarm heart, to maybe flush out that lukewarmness and bring in that hotness or that coldness, whatever, right? Cause, cause uh, your heart to rise to a boiling point for him. In other words, enough of the casual Christianity. And then he says, repent. Change. Turn away from relying on yourself and turn to God and rely on Him. And instead of thinking and acting like you're self-sufficient, that you don't need God, you don't need Christ, recognize that your sufficiency is found in Christ alone. So be zealous be repent, and, and, and repent. And then we have the, the consolation. 
the consolation. And again, Christ is so gracious. He's so kind. He's so merciful. He's ended every one of these letters by providing each of these churches some positive incentive to respond to his call. And in this case, his call to zealous repentance. And so he gave this church two promises, one for the present and the other for the future. What's the present promise? Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and, will, and he with me. This is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Some of you have this verse memorized, right? Am I right? And it's typically understood and used as an evangelistic text to encourage lost people to come to Christ. I'm sure you've all heard a message at some point in your life. The pastor's up there and he's saying, listen, you know, Jesus is here tonight saying to you, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Jesus is knocking at your heart's door. He wants to come into your life. Now, you've heard that right? Now, again, I appreciate the spirit of that. Um, but, the, but the idea of Christ being portrayed as knocking at the door of an unbeliever's heart, pleading with them to invite him into their lives, is not the context of this letter. And, and by the way, there's, there's like even a famous painting. Some of you guys may have seen this. Um, and it's based on this verse, and it pictures um, a gate, like a doorway in a garden, and, and here's Jesus, kind of forlorn-looking, um, impotently knocking at a door with a door handle on the inside. Like, there's no door handle. Specifically, the painting has no door handle on the outside. In other words, it's up to you, right, <laughs> to open the door. Now, again, is there some truth in, 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 in that? Yeah, sure. But the point I'm making here is that Christ was not addressing unbelievers in this text. He was addressing his church. He was addressing the church in Laodicea. He's saying, I'm standing at the door of your church, and I'm knocking. And if anyone in there hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And so the picture, if you wanted to paint a picture, I think what the picture should be is that of the glorious, risen, ascended, all-powerful Lord Jesus Christ standing at the door of the church in Laodicea and inviting these lukewarm Christians to repent and reestablish fellowship with him. You say, well, wait a minute, though. Uh, how did Christ get outside the church? I thought he was the head of the church. How did he get outside the church? Well, may I suggest to you that in their blind foolishness and self-reliance, they had excommunicated Christ from their own congregation. Because they thought they had everything they needed, they had inadvertently excommunicated him. They didn't need him, so in essence, they'd kicked him out. They'd kind of shown him the door, as we say, right? Someone likened this scenario to a rich man inviting a beggar to come live in his house to share his riches, and then with the passing of time, the beggar rudely evicts the rich man from his own home, and so the rich man then tries to regain entrance into his own home. That's our story, right? Christ is the rich man who invited us beggars to come live in his house to share his riches. And yet, over time, we begin to feel self-reliant. We don't feel as dependent on him as we used to. And, and so we kind of get uh, self-confident and, and uh, we, we pretty much you know, think we don't need him anymore. And so we kind of take over our lives again, right? And now he says, no, I want, I want to be back in the house. And so here, in an act of unbelievable condescension, Christ was graciously asking them to allow him back into the place of preeminence in their church and in their lives. 
I'm still here. In other words, I'm still here. But you guys put me out here, but I want to be back in there. And I'm not going to knock down the door like the Roman soldiers would do and demand that you feed me a meal. That's what they did here in Laodicea. Everybody wanted to go to Laodicea because it was kind of like the, the place to be. It was wealthy and they had like theaters and entertainment and call, you know, stadiums and, and the, the, you know, all the baths and, and all the luxuries. And so Roman soldiers would come and they would, they would just kind of demand entrance into your home. And by law, you had to let a Roman soldier sleep in your house. You had to feed him a meal. And so Jesus may have been referring to that, that here he was, very gracious, very humble. But he's saying to those who respond, I will reestablish intimate fellowship and communion with you. I will dine with him and he with me. The word dine there, uh, there's different words in the Greek for meals. This was not breakfast, which was usually a light meal. This was not lunch, which was like a picnic snack on the run. Uh, grab a piece of fish and go, right? This was the evening meal. This, this was supper. And in Easter land, supper Dinner was the main meal of the day, and it was a time to sit. It was a time to linger and enjoy the close fellowship of family and friends. This was not a time to catch a quick bite and be on your way. And, and again, this hopefully describes what our quiet time should be like, right? That we're not just there, kind of the quick bite, and we're off and running. Um, but we love to just sit down and dine with the Lord. I think lukewarm Christians settle for shallow, sporadic fellowship with Christ. I'll never forget looking at uh, a, a, a magazine filled with books, new books that were coming out. And I came across a book, you, some of you may have seen it, One Minute Quiet Time for Busy Christians. Well, I appreciate the sentiment. They want to encourage everybody to have a quiet time. That's a good thing. And hey, I'll take one minute as long as you're making the effort, right? But seriously, we're, like that's where it's gotten that we're just going to settle for a minute because we're busy. In other words, too many Christians, I think, are content with just enough Jesus to keep them out of hell, but not enough of Jesus to make them long for heaven, to long to be with him. John Flavel, who we, I guess they talked about this Sunday, right, uh, in the Puritan class, this is what he said, strive to come up to the highest attainment of communion with God in this world. In other words, more than a minute. And be not contented with just so much grace as will secure you from hell, labor after such a height of grace and communion with God as may bring you into the suburbs of heaven on earth. So good. So the, the present promise here that Jesus gives is, hey, I mean, we're, we're, we'll have restored fellowship. We're going to be spending some, some significant time together. And there's also a future promise here. Look at verse 21. And he who overcomes, which we've gotten familiar with that phrase. It's in every one of these letters. He who overcomes. It's a synonym for a Christian, someone who's truly saved and who doesn't fall away, who perseveres to the end by the grace of God. He says, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So to those who overcome lukewarmness, who put away casual Christianity and apathy and indifference, he promised them a place next to him on his throne where we will rule with him during the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth and for all eternity. Revelation 20, verse 6 talks about uh, reigning with Christ there during that uh, millennial reign his millennial reign. Um, but I love this. He, and and this, is, this is next level here. He's been talking about overcomers, and we, we were the overcomers. But now he talks about himself. He refers to himself as the ultimate overcomer, as I also overcame. 
Christ has overcome the world. He's overcome sin. He's overcome death. He's overcome hell and Satan. And someday he will overcome the Antichrist and everyone who's ever rebelled against him. And this is one of the many promises the, the overcomer gave in these seven letters to all those overcomers who faithfully follow in his steps. We're just, we're just following the, the ultimate overcomer. And again, all these promises that we've seen, they all relate to getting to go to heaven and what will happen to us when we get there. And then, of course, we have the familiar ending, verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Same way he end every, ended every one of the other letters. And, and this time, though, I think this concluding, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, is not just a conclusion to the letter to the church in Laodicea, but to all seven of these letters to the churches in Asia. And I think these seven letters, just in, in, in general, in summary, address the main problems that churches have faced and that Christians have faced in the past and will continue to face until Jesus returns to get us. Ephesus, the problem of diminishing love for Christ. Anyone here struggle with that? The church in Smyrna, the problem of being afraid to suffer. Anybody ever scared to be persecuted, experience persecution for the standing up for Christ? The church in Pergamum, the problem of, of, of compromise, doctrinally, morally. The church in Thyatira, again, the problem of moral compromise there, the, a tol being tolerant of, of sin. Sardis, the problem of spiritual deadness. Philadelphia, while it was a positive letter, um, he wanted them to reach their full potential. And sometimes we don't do that, right? We struggle to reach our full potential. And then here, we've looked at the church in Laodicea, the problem of apathy, the problem of indifference. I want to close with some thoughts of another pastor on the church in Laodicea. And this is what he wrote. I think it's so applicable to all of us. He says, can you think of a better picture of believers in the American church than the church in Laodicea that we just studied tonight? When Christians in poorer parts of the world come to the U.S. and visit our churches, they're appalled by our lukewarmness, by how little we pray, how little we give, how much we spend on ourselves and what we think we can't live without. They are appalled at how afraid we are to identify ourselves as Christians in public when some of them are being persecuted for their faith. They're appalled at how much we look like Laodicea to the Laodiceans, to us. Jesus doesn't say he's angry or disappointed. He says, you make me want to vomit. And then he said this. I have to think that Jesus has such a visceral and personal reaction because this kind of apathy tells the world such a pernicious lie about him. The single biggest cause of atheism is people who claim to know God but are not distinct in any way from the world. They might have grown up in Christian homes and in church, but they're around people whose passions were not boiling hot for Jesus, nor was their behavior and their morals like an awakening cup of cold water in the face. Those Christians were the temperature of everyone around them. This should be a sobering thought for every believer. If our passion for Jesus is pathetic, or you could say apathetic, that means we're telling the world that there really isn't much to be excited about with Jesus. Our lukewarm temperature tells the world that yes, in fact, it is completely appropriate to be bored with Jesus. We're telling our hellbound friends and family that heaven isn't all that great anyway. So open your heart to him, to Christ. Ask him to transform your life into one of the wholehearted in one of wholehearted devotion to him so that every detail of your life, your morals, your giving, 
the way you spend your time will scream, Christ is worthy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are so kind to give us this time together this summer to study this very significant portion of your word. And we know that Christ is so worthy. And Lord, forgive us for so often living in a way that doesn't make him look worthy or seem worthy to those that aren't Christians who look at our lives and really don't see much difference between our life and their life and our um, convictions and their convictions, our standards, their standards. Um, And Lord, we just thank you for being so loving towards us that even when you have to say hard things to us like you have in this letter tonight, we know you're saying it because you love us and that we're dear to you, that we're your beloved bride and you want um, not only for you to experience intimacy with us, but you want us to experience intimacy with you. So Lord, I pray that tonight you would use these words, uh, your words, to convict us, to comfort us, and to conform us more to the image of our bridegroom Christ. May he become more and more precious to us every day. We pray this in his name. Amen.